Our reading today, though, comes from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Good morning, everyone. Um, My name's Jamie, if I haven't met you yet. Um, We've got a short but very deep passage to look at together this morning. Um, In my role as a pastor um, of this church, I've been learning a lot about leadership, um, often by trial and definitely error. Um, But I'm actually really thankful that I get to um, be at a church where I get to work with people I can learn heaps from. Um, So here's one insight that I found really helpful in leadership and kind of just in life, and that's this. It's a very dangerous thing to attribute motives to someone when you don't know what their motives are. Do you know what I mean? So um, if someone does something frustrating and you don't know why, it's probably best not to make up a story in your head about that person's motivations Um, In fact, the wisdom that I've picked up, you know, as I've been learning from people who have been leading others for longer than me, says that attributing motives adds unnecessary stress and tension to relationships and probably actually tells you more about you than it does about the other person. So a classic would be, um, you know, someone pays you a compliment and you, you attribute motives by thinking they must want something from me when the reality could be that they were just being nice. And you learn, the only thing you learn from that little thought experiment is that you are worried about people wanting things from you. You don't actually learn about the other person at all. My question today is, do we do that with God? That would be dangerous and could hamper our relationship with him but it's easy to do. Come with me for this little thought experiment. Why did Jesus die on the cross? What motivated God to do that? I'm going to list off some options and just have a think about which one you more naturally gravitate to. The cross happened, A, because God wanted to show us just how seriously he takes human sin. B, as an example of how God wants us to live sacrificially for others. C, to expose the horrors of human cruelty as humans torture and kill an innocent man who happens to be their own creator. D, to settle the debt you owe to God. E, so that the holy God can stand to be in your presence. Which one stands out for you? Uh, Now, there's truth in everything I've just said, but none of them is the ultimate motivator for God. And I want to suggest that a lot of the barriers that stop us from being all in for Jesus, you know, trusting him, serving him joyfully, come from misconceptions about God's motives. Whether they're way off Or just something like I've listed here. You know, if A or D are God's ultimate motive for the cross, then you will see God primarily as a fair judge. 
If B is the answer, then God is at best a life coach or at worst a guilt monger. If C, then God is a cosmic whistleblower. If E, he's the untouchable one. And we will then relate to him as such. It's dangerous to attribute motives when we don't know. But God actually lets us in on what makes him tick. Our passage today, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, gives us a direct window into God's heart. That in itself makes this verse kind of worth slowing down for a deep dive. But my prayer is that our time in this glorious verse will do more than give us an insight into what makes God tick. I'm praying that it will leave each of us more blown away by who God is and seeing ourselves and our world differently. Okay, hopefully you're feeling really frustrated now because I've been circling around, you know, the answer to what motivated the cross. And it's right there in front of you in John 3.16, but I haven't said it yet. God sent his son into the world because of love. That's point one in your outlines if you're following along. God's love for a lost world. In John 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus has just given a hint to a religious man named Nicodemus of his mission to bring new life. And Jesus talks about being lifted up like the snake of Moses. And he's talking about being lifted up on a Roman cross. And then in our verse, John the author gives the reason for the cross. It starts with the word for, which is an explaining word, like because... For God so loved the world. Jesus went to the cross because of God's love. That's the ultimate motivator. All those things I listed before find their place and make sense under that big motive. It was love that drove God the Father to send the Son to pay our debt to make us clean, to show what sacrifice looks like, to show how badly we need a saviour, love. And since we're taking a deep dive, let's notice what God so loved. John chooses his words carefully. God so loved the religious. No. God so loved those who believe. No. God so loved the world. Now, that's striking, especially when we have a look at the way John talks about the world in the rest of his book. Uh, One commentator I read said that what's striking about God's love for the world is not how big the world is, but how bad it is. You know, it's amazing that God loves all different kinds of people from different races and backgrounds and times, but John is highlighting it's even more amazing that God loves a world that is so dead set against him. Let me show you what I mean with a few examples. John 1 verse 10, talking about God the Son taking on flesh, Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. John 15 verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. 
John 16, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. When John talks about the world, he is talking about humanity united in their rejection of God, whether that's through outright rebellion or under the polite guise of religion that doesn't really listen to God, Nicodemus. It's that world, our world, that God loved. Before anyone repented or started listening to Jesus, when there was nothing lovable in us, God loved the world. And out of that love, God made the first move. Do you know what it's like to love someone who doesn't love you back? It's the love of a dad who watches their grown-up kid leave home with no plans to stay in touch. And he hears of the way their child has squandered the family's money on reckless living. And then the dad stands on the doorstep waiting just in case his child decides to come home. And when he spots the speck of their child in the distance, runs through town to embrace them. Uh, In our broken world, it's hard to find an analogy of God the Father's love for his world. Um, So that was just the the parable of the prodigal son, right? The father who loves this son, even at his most unlovable God knows what it's like to love someone who doesn't love you back. Nicodemus, an outwardly good man, but in his heart, miles from God. The woman in chapter 4, living way out of step with God's good design for sex and marriage. Peter, Jesus' closest friend, who deserts him in his hour of need, because in the end, looking out for number one comes first. This is the world that God so loved. I could go on. Jamie, God chased me down for 16 years, holding out opportunity after opportunity to hear about his great love for me, and he got nothing back but disinterest. But God is the loving Father. His heart is set on the people he made, even when we give Nothing back, even when we hate him. So just know that he is so ready to see a lost person in the distance so that he can welcome them back. If you're a believer in Jesus today, let's never forget that God loved you when you were at your most unlovable, before you gave anything back. If you're here maybe a bit on the fence about Jesus, please hear clearly that this is how God is standing towards you right now, so ready to welcome you home. And as we look out to a world where so many are living as enemies of God, this is the world that God loved and sent Jesus to save. Not with the love of a softy who doesn't care how you treat him, not at all, but the real love of a father, love that wants better things 
and holds out to the very end. As our culture increasingly moves from its Christian roots, I reckon there's a challenge there. How do you see the world? In the John sense of the word. Just to pick one example, Christian teachers are facing an increasing number of challenges when it comes to having integrity in their work. How do our hearts respond to those who are stirring up difficulty for those sisters and brothers? It's easy to feel cranky, maybe even alarmed at the state of things. But this window into the heart of God reminds us that this is the world God loves with heartbreaking, long-suffering love, which frees us not to pretend that there's no issues and everything's fine, but to weep tears of compassion, to pray that God might turn the hearts of those who are currently living as God's enemies, to reach out with the hope of Jesus, even in the most complicated circumstances. God's love is for a lost world. Point two, love that gives everything. Real love is about so much more than like a nice sentiment, isn't it? It's got to be practical. And real love always expresses itself in action. For God so loved the world. The word so is important. John is saying God loved the world like so, you know, in this way. The action that demonstrates his love is about to come, which is he gave his one and only son. The word love can mean lots of things, can't it? But this is the kind of love we're talking about here today. Love that will give everything for the good of the other. God's love for this lost world motivated him to give everything, his one and only son, that which was most precious to him. He held nothing back so that lost people who were giving nothing back might be saved. Can you imagine ever making a sacrifice that gut-wrenching? Um, but again, our human analogies aren't perfect. Uh, you might hear John 3.16 and think, wow, the father loves the world a lot. Um, what about his son sending him to be crucified by a world that rejects him? Uh, what's going on there? Uh, I think that's where I just want to point out some differences between the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and human parent-child relationships. So key difference number one, um, Jesus did not die as a child. Uh, he dies fully human as a consenting adult. Key difference number two, Jesus, unlike us, is fully God. He is the eternal Son He's not God the Father, but he is just as much God as God the Father. Um, so just touching on the brain-melting doctrine of the Trinity here. Um, but the point is that this isn't the Father sending a subordinate to do his dirty work. This is God giving of himself in the most costly way. Like a parent giving their child, but without the power imbalance... Key difference number three, Jesus is 100% on the same page as his father when it comes to this mission of love. 
John, more than any of the other gospel writers, I think, emphasizes Jesus' power over his own death. So in John 10, he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, only to take it up again. So on that terrible Good Friday, as Jesus hangs naked and bleeding for the sins of the world... He is fully invested in his father's mission to save this lost world. God the Son is giving his own life because of that same love. And God the Father is giving the life of his own beloved Son. In a way that we can never replicate, that's love that gives everything So, can I ask, in your day-to-day life, in your good moments and your not-so-good moments, how do you reckon God feels about you? Um, This is where we hit the danger of attributing motives, right? I think it's very human to assume that God's attitude towards us is motivated by something other than that all-in-love How are you tempted to imagine God feels about you? What can you learn about yourself from that? What barriers block me from accepting the simple, shocking truth that God loves me? Am I letting my own imperfect attempts at love or the hurt that I've suffered because I haven't been loved well by others distort the truth? that God is my loving Father. Let today be a great chance to be confronted by the fact that God gave everything for you. Uh, Maybe you struggle to believe that God really loves you because your history is just that bad. I don't know, maybe your attempts to live for God have just been that lame. Or you've just messed up your other relationships that much. If that's you, I want you to be confronted by God's love. Just picture Jesus on that cross, on that Good Friday. What more would it take to convince you that God loves you? What more would you like him to give? Would you have Jesus hang there for another half an hour? Another two hours for that extra bad sin that you've got? He has already given you everything. He cannot love you anymore. Maybe you're not sure if God is even really there. Can I ask, what more could he give to show you not only that he exists, but that he's good? His one and only son and what? A well-timed lightning bolt? His stance towards you right now is nothing but love. Whether you're a bit cynical about the things of God or maybe you've been an enthusiastic follower of Jesus for years, one thing that I reckon lots of us face is an uneasy relationship with the idea of being loved Because our human analogies of love are just often far from perfect, aren't they? 
Okay, just changing gears. I, I had mild success with a Seinfeld reference last week. I chose to believe that it was a mild success, so I'm just going to go a little bit further off the deep end with a pop culture reference. Um, does anyone remember the Wayne's World movies? Wayne's World? Yes? Okay, some hesitant... I'm going to consider that a mild success, and so next week. <laughs> Doesn't matter if you haven't seen them, you don't know what I'm talking about, they are very silly movies. It's about these kind of like party doofuses, having fun, making a radio show, and there's this great scene where they're at a party, head-banging to some like early 90s rock, and this goofy guy Terry comes up to Wayne, all excited, and he says, I love you, man. Okay, I love you, man. And Wayne says, uh, yeah, and I love you too, Terry. You know, kind of like averting his eyes. Okay, do you get that kind of awkward, cringy feeling when someone puts love out there? We kind of want to look away. Now, this is definitely a bit too deep for Wayne's world, but I think that's because love makes us vulnerable. Okay, some guy says, I love you, man, at a party, and you think, no, you're just excited and maybe a little bit intoxicated, right? Or you might think, you say that, but you don't really know me. Or you might have strong feelings now, but will you come through for me when life gets hard? Because I've been let down before. Or what do, you, do you just want something from me? Are you using the I love you to get something? People have done horrible things in the name of love. To accept that someone loves you makes you vulnerable. But here's what we know about God. He really knows us, even at our most unlovable. He promises to be with us in good times and bad. He's so committed to our good that he has already given his absolute best at such cost to himself. He is motivated by real sacrificial love. So the challenge, if that's the right word for today, is Make yourself vulnerable and celebrate the fact that God loves you. How's that for some sermon application? Okay, God loves you. Does it make you want to look away? Here are some thoughts that tug at my mind when I hear that simple truth, God loves me. Yeah, but don't forget, I'm still a sinner. It's no excuse to, you know, give up on repenting and becoming more like Jesus just because God loves me. To which John says, sure, but remember, God so loved the world, which means that that's me when I'm at my most lost, my most unlovable. God loved me enough then to give me everything. Or, yeah, God loves the world, but that doesn't mean it's okay for people to keep rejecting the gospel. And John isn't saying that. God loves you. God loves me. The kids' Bibles have it spot on. Can I say, sidelining the love of the Father will impact your Christian life. Do you want to become embittered when the challenges of life hit? Just imagine that God doesn't want the best for you. 
Do you want to become guilt-ridden and exhausted by serving Jesus? Guarded about giving too much to him? Well, just imagine that God is motivated by his frustration towards you, always wanting more. John 3.16 stops us from making up wrong motives for God. Because the truth is God cannot love you any more than he does right now. And nothing you do from here on can make him love you any less. When you sin, uh, when you're not super engaged in your faith, his stance towards you is always love. He is waiting with open arms, so ready, just busting to forgive and renew He's not going to let you go because you do something that shocks him. He's already given you his one and only son. Why would he stop now? Point three, the only hope for a lost world. I hope we've had a bit of a window into God's ultimate motivation. We've seen the action that flowed out of his love. And now we get the purpose so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is what our loving Father puts on the table. Eternal life instead of death and judgment. The hope of not perishing. It means that not only is death not the end, but God has made a way for human beings to escape the punishment that we've all earned by defying our good creator. Now, we've been talking about love. Isn't judgment the opposite of love? It can be. When a human being delights in wielding power over another or makes himself feel better by seeing another person proven wrong, that's ugly. But that's not how God thinks about judgment. In fact, God only judges because he is driven by love. He loves us too much to kind of just say that whatever you do is fine. But what's clear in both the New Testament and the Old is that God does not punish human beings because he wants a power trip or because he likes to see people suffering. That's why you get key verses like Ezekiel 18 verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? With God, there is no judgment without tears. And so Jesus will stand at the edge of Jerusalem and weep. Because he knows that so many are about to heap terrible judgment on themselves. And he longs that it were not so. To that we might say, well... Why doesn't God just make it impossible for anyone to perish? But he loves us too much for that. We're not puppets. And as our maker, he dignifies us by taking our response to him seriously. If we say, get out of my life, at some point he will say, okay. But not at this point, right? And the reality of death is just a taste of all that comes as a consequence of that. 
we do struggle with the idea of judgment, don't we? I kind of hope we do, because if God doesn't delight in it, like neither should we. But part of our struggle might be because we underestimate just how much our world has spurned God's love. Uh, we've been renting in Door Park for a bit over two years now, and up until recently there was an unoccupied house next door to us, which kind of confused me for a while, like, nice house, great neighbours, what's it doing empty? Uh, Turns out it was waiting to be demolished. Uh, It looked okay on the outside, but turns out there were some pretty bad issues with the bones of the thing, and it was a start-over kind of job. Um, To use John's language from verse 18, it stood condemned. That's actually our world. It looks vibrant and full of life on the surface. But let's be honest, even just looking inside ourselves, we know there are deep problems that a fresh coat of paint isn't going to fix. The biggest of which is humanity's determination to walk out on its maker. But God's all-in love doesn't leave things there. He sent Jesus to say... Come out of the condemned house. He he doesn't want you to perish. At great personal cost, Jesus went in to grab us out so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus defines eternal life like this in John 17. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent Eternal life means that there is life beyond the grave in a world made new, but it's more than that, if you can believe it. It's living in a real, vibrant relationship with the God who loves you, knowing and being known forever. And that starts now. That's why God sent his son. So let me ask, is Christianity inclusive or exclusive? Inclusive or exclusive? Who gets eternal life in John 3.16? Whoever believes in the Son. That's very exclusive on one level. God has extended one lifeline into this condemned world. Only those who take it will see life. Yet it's also more inclusive than anything I've seen in this world. Because that lifeline is extended to all. Eternal life is not offered to whoever is from this race or that, or whoever has achieved this level of education or that, this gender, this political leaning, this age, this moral standard or that. Whoever believes. Believing in the Son, it just means taking that lifeline. Or to use our phrase for the day, accepting and celebrating the fact that God loves you. That simple act of trust is the beginning of a life-changing relationship with him. God's heart for his world drove him to offer this expensive lifeline for all. And if you're worrying about those who haven't heard about it yet, that's exactly right. That's why missionaries go out. That's why local churches like us are always 
trying to look outside of ourselves, trying to bring this message of love to anyone and everyone. So I can't pass by this passage without asking, have you taken that lifeline? God's great love for the world, it does confront us all with a choice. Let me read John 3, 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. I don't know where you're at today. I certainly don't know what's going on on the inside. But eternal life is on the table. Have you said yes to Jesus? Have you stepped away from this condemned world and towards the loving embrace of your Father? No matter who you are, no matter what your track record Just know he is waiting for you, longing that you might take the hand of Jesus. Now, this is a matter of our trust and our response to the Father's love. So it will be complicated, I know. But would today be a good line in the sand moment for you? To say, God, you know that I've been trying to live without you. You know my track record. Thank you for loving me. I want to know this life. God is so ready to hear that kind of prayer. Or is today the day that you need to resolve to follow up on this stuff? Maybe to sign up for the life course that's coming up soon. Maybe the line in the sand that you need to draw today is more like this. Um, God, I have been attributing false motives to you. I have been acting as though you are not my loving father. And I want to repent of that today. So I can know the all-in joy of being your child again. Is today a good line in the sand kind of day for you? Um, Next week is our 10-year birthday, right? Um, I'm one of the many people who have joined the church after it started. Um, But can I tell you, in fact, I can tell you, um, I know this, we started because God so loved the world. That's what drove that starter team to reach out into a new part of God's world with that lifeline so that people might know that their maker has given everything for their good. And that's why we're here now, right? Maybe you can look back. This would be a good thing to do this week, I think. How has God used your time here, whether it's long or short, to show his great love to you personally? And let me add, um, this is the love that will see us through the next 10 years. Uh, Whatever they might bring, um, we head into them knowing that we're secure in the successes or failures that might be coming. Because God can't love us any more than he already does right now. Always moving outside of ourselves because there's a world out there full of people who God loves, 
who currently stand condemned. May God give us a heart like his that patiently and persistently calls those around us, no matter how far off, come home to Jesus. Amen.